This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The HBO comedy drama series The White Lotus, one of the TV hits of the pandemic, is wrapping up its second season with one episode remaining. The first season was nominated for 20 Emmys and won 10, including Best Limited or Anthology Series. It won our guest Mike White, its creator, Emmys for both writing and directing. Mike White also created the HBO series Enlightened. He wrote the hit film School of Rock, wrote and directed the films Year of the Dog and Brad Status, and early in his career wrote several episodes of the TV series Freaks and Geeks and Dawson's Creek. In the New York Times, Alexis Solosky pointed out two themes he's examined in his work, the gulf between the people we imagine ourselves to be and the people we actually are, and how living your best life usually pushes a lot of people into living worse ones. A seemingly out-of-character chapter of his career is being a reality show contestant. He competed on two seasons of The Amazing Race with his father and was a runner-up on Survivor. The White Lotus is about the staff and the wealthy guests at five-star luxury resort hotels in gorgeous panoramic settings. The settings resemble paradise, but the guests are wrapped up in their problems. Season one was set at a White Lotus Hotel in Hawaii and focused on class, money, and entitlement. Season two is set at a resort hotel in a beautiful part of Sicily. The cast includes Michael Imperioli, F. Murray Abraham, and Aubrey Plaza. Jennifer Coolidge plays the same self-absorbed, insecure, incredibly wealthy character she played in the first season. This season pivots around the sex lives of its main characters— passionate, indifferent, and transactional sex, sex from the perspective of sex addicts, sex with and without love, and the suspicion, jealousy, mischief, and mayhem that are sometimes the consequences of sex. Mike White, welcome back to Fresh Air. I'm really enjoying the series, and I'm really happy that the first season was so acclaimed. Why did you want to focus season two on some of the ways, some of the many ways, sex can make you sad, lonely, distrustful, angry, jealous, and add to your misery? Well, originally I had a different idea. I was totally going in a different direction. And then we went scouting for hotels and we went to the hotel that we ended up choosing, which was in Taramina, the San Domenico Palace, which is a renovated convent. And it's just a very spectacular hotel, and it was seemed like the perfect place to set the show. The original idea was more like heavy hitters in business and more about power. And, and then I got there and I was like, this feels like this is not the right place to, for that kind of topic. And it just kind of gave me the idea that maybe to kind of focus more on sexual jealousy and adultery and infidelity and a more kind of operatic kind of bedroom farce. And, you know, like the first season we did so much about privilege and about how money is is used as a wedge between, in relationships, both sort of intimate and, you know, just in, in kind of even surface relationships. And I just felt like maybe we should try to, you know, not repeat that same idea. And it just felt like sex is always <laughs> such a fertile concept, you know, theme to explore. So I, it kind of, the, the place sort of forced my hand in a way. From the intro I gave, it might give the impression that the series is very sexually explicit. There's some scenes that are, but not that many. It's mostly people talking about their sex lives and brooding about their resentments and jealousies. But, you know, like nudity and sex helped get HBO off the ground. It's one of the things it first became famous for. 
So how did you decide how explicit to make the season? I mean, I'm I'm kind of just personally, <laughs> certainly as a director, I'm very timid about asking people to like undress and like get into sexual situations. It's not, <laughs> it's not my wheelhouse. And so like, this was like, there was definitely times on this shoot that I was like, <laughs> what have I got myself into? Like, I'm just <laughs> like, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, my threshold for awkwardness is very low. So uh, there's a lot of... Um, the actors are much more confident and uninhibited than I am. And so that was new terrain for me. It just felt like it was important because it really is baked into the narrative. So, you know, it's funny, though, how now that the show is airing, how... <laughs> how much you realize, you know, like a graphic sex scene or a sex scene that kind of um, is titillating for various reasons does just spike and generate interest in <laughs> in the populace, uh, uh, for better or worse. I don't know what that says, but it definitely feels like as far as like online chatter and just general, like, I don't know, excitement around the show, it's funny how certain like sex scenes have like galvanized interest in the narrative of the show. You know, this season is also about um, generational differences in what it means to be a man or generational differences in perceptions of harmless flirting versus sexual harassment. And um, I want to play a scene in which three generations of men, a grandfather played by F. Murray Abraham, his adult son played by Michael Imperioli, and Imperioli's son played by Adam DeMarco, are vacationing in Sicily, staying at this luxury hotel, and they take a trip to where the Sicily scenes from The Godfather 2 were shot, including the scene where Michael Corleone's new wife is killed by a car bomb that was intended for him. And so they're right near, just a few feet away really, near where that scene was shot, sitting in a restaurant talking. And the grandfather is talking about why he thinks this is just an amazingly fantastic film. So here's the scene, and F. Murray Abraham speaks first. The best American movie ever made. No, it's not. No? Why not? I think so. Well, yeah, I mean, you would. All right, what's that supposed to mean? It's because you're nostalgic for the salad days of the patriarchy. They're undeniably great movies. Men love The Godfather because they feel emasculated by modern society. It's a fantasy about a time when they could go out and solve all their problems with violence and sleep with every woman and then come home to their wife who doesn't ask them any questions and makes them possible. Hey, 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 it's a normal male fantasy. No, movies like that socialize men into having that fantasy. (laughs) Movies like that exist because men already do have that fantasy. We're hardwired. Comes with the testosterone. No, gender is... A construct. It's created. He spent all that money on Stafford. He comes back brainwashed. Um, one of the things I like about this scene is that, I mean, I think the Godfather, especially Godfather 2, is just like an undeniably spectacular film. And it's not because I'm a male nostalgic <laughs> for <laughs> the days of patriarchy, but there are some people who can't see a film as a film that are just seeing the politics in the film and the representation in the film. And um, I sometimes find that frustrating, but specifically like with older movies, and I mean movies even older than the Godfather movies, a lot of older movies are from an era where sexual politics just weren't good. (laughs) 
I mean, you know, like women were like wives and, and, and housekeepers and, you know, occasionally there'd be a working woman in a movie and she'd often be punished for it or just like give it up for marriage in, in the end. But there's sometimes still great movies. And I'm wondering how you separate that when you watch old movies, how you separate like the sexual politics or any of the, you know, colonialist politics from just the, the movie making and the, you know, the way the story is told that may still be like quite good. Well, it's I mean, I, I'm of two minds. I wrote the first season and it talked about a lot of whatever thorny political and social issues and a lot of people embraced it. And then, I, you know, there were certain kind of criticisms where it was, you know, where it, when you start reading everything about the value of a piece of art by how it lines up with your political philosophy or how it should, you know, deal with certain kinds of representations, whether marginalized groups or how, you know, it's like it, it just starts to feel like as a creative person, you start to feel like you're in a, in a box. But like as far as like there are tropes that are just inherently racist or or sexist and and obviously that's you know not something I'm looking to try to <laughs> reboot but like this whole season of the show is sort of a little bit like kind of going into some a certain like constellation of tropes and try to like <laughs> play with those tropes in a way that hopefully feels fresh for me, it's like, you know, some of the most problematic movies have things in it that spark my imagination, that have some kind of mischievous appeal that I go back to that, you know, on their face are like, you know, you would reject some of the, yeah, the politics of it or how things are represented. But to me, it's like, I don't, I'm not always going to movies to have my politics affirmed. I want to play another scene, which is similar to the one that we heard it has the same characters in it and um this is about like the generational difference between flirting and sexual harassment and the setup is f mary abraham the grandfather is um at the luxurious restaurant in the luxurious hotel (laughs) with his son played by michael imperioli and imperioli's son um so the grandfather f mary abraham starts flirting with the young, attractive waitress. You just flew all the way in from Los Angeles <laughs> just to be here in Sicily because we are Sicilian. You Sicilian? Yes, from Catania. Ah, you married? Dad, why don't you let her put our order in so I can get a drink? My son is a big muckety-muck in Hollywood, so he's very impatient. I'll bring you your drinks. Thank Thanks. You. Sorry. Thank you. Dad, you got to knock it off. Oh, what's the problem? What are you doing? I mean, what's the point? Flirting is one of the pleasures of life. Do you actually think you have a chance with any of these women? Oh, don't be rude. I'm just saying, you're 80 years old. Oh, I'm still a man. And I get older and older, but the women I desire remain young. Natural, right? You can relate to that. Natural, right? <laughs> you must have seen flirtatious behavior where you're really embarrassed for the older man and uncomfortable for the younger woman, the man who thinks, you know, flirting is harmless and it's charming and adorable and the younger woman who feels like really, you know, annoyed or harassed by it. 
Well, I actually have like had that with my own dad, who's gay, and we went on a trip. We had a similar trip to Sweden. His roots are Swedish, which I guess are my roots too. And you know, he would still say stuff like, "Oh, that guy is really handsome," or so I don't know, or like I could tell he would be sort of, you know, find some guy attractive and then start like having a not necessarily a flirtatious, like overtly, but not like maybe as bad as like what Bird is doing, but like something about it. I think that seeing yourself in that and then it's you're also your dad and and he's 80 years old you're just like oh please like it's like i don't know i just i i, I revert back to the 12 year old of me where i'm like do not please do not embarrass me dad or, you know so uh <laughs> yeah so i think it's I, I i can relate to the yeah the part where it's just like you don't want to think about that side of them and you also don't want to think that like at a certain age they're they're still feeling that way or still having those desires that you see in yourself and want to try to disown so it's like I think there's just so many layers of like wanting to be more than just yeah those having those base instincts and then also wanting your yeah parent to even more so live up to that and and they, they never do <laughs> and also feeling that that person is blind to the reaction they're actually getting that they're so right. and also it's like it's the guy who yeah was handsome and was able to get women at a certain age and still thinks he's maybe he still's got that charm and still has a chance so I want to confess, I started watching season two of The White Lotus after the first episode. So then I went back and watched the first episode to catch up and was surprised to find <laughs> that in the opening scene, one of the characters, after talking about what a great vacation this is, what a perfect setting, what a perfect place, goes into the ocean for a swim and shortly after leaving the shore sees a dead body. It turns out there's several dead bodies floating in the ocean. So after the first scene, you know, this isn't part a murder mystery. And you said before, because the first season is like this too, where there's, you know that there's been a murder, and, but you don't know like who's behind it, that it keeps people watching. You know, once there's a dead body, you have to find out like who did it. But um, you must be laughing about that too. You know, knowing how you're intentionally using that as a way to keep people watching. You know, I've been making stuff for a long time, and when that first season became such a kind of, I don't know, water cooler show or people were talking about it, I was like, oh, actually, <laughs> had I only known if I'd put a dead body at the beginning of Enlightened, maybe people would have, seen, <laughs> would have watched Enlightened. I don't know. Like, uh, you know, you realize these kinds of hooks, like, do actually get viewers and hopefully you can, you know, still try to, you know, it's like, you know, that is not what what drives me to make this stuff. But it, I do, you know, I, I enjoy it when people see it and are engaged in it. So it felt like obviously that device did work the first season. And, and as far as the second season, I was, you know, since we're doing a new hotel and new actors, new characters, it was like, well, what is, what is White Lotus as a franchise? And maybe this device is a part of it, which is just feeling like there's going to be, you know, there's something, it's building to a kind of operatic or, you know, tragic ending for one of these characters. And clearly it definitely, you know, just from based on like online chatter and just friends and different people, it feels like it clearly is something that drives interest in the show. And hopefully, you know, you'll, you know, people will decide at the conclusion whether it's satisfying or it feels just devicey. But at this point, I, I'm, I'm excited about the finale. I do feel like it sort of feels like it's, there's a justification for it. But, uh, but yeah, it's not really my, 
my natural wheelhouse, but, you know, as somebody who's been kind of working in the margins, like, it is kind of nice to have viewers. <laughs> You've been a contestant on reality shows, including Survivor and The Amazing Race. And in a way, part of the White Lotus is like Survivor in the sense that you know people are going to get, you know, voted off the island, or in this case, like, murdered <laughs> off the island. because And it literally is an island th- that it's set on. So do you think you were influenced by Survivor in kind of creating that suspense of, like, who's going to survive and who's going to be forced off? <laughs> it's funny. It's embarrassingly true. It's funny because I was Jeff Probst, who is the, the the host of Survivor, is a friend now. And I was with him not long ago, and he was talking about how much he loved the show. And I was thinking about, I was like thinking about, I was like, there's all these devices that are literally out of Survivor, which is, yeah, who's going to die at the end of the show? And then we use these transitions and like this kind of music. It's like, because Survivor is not that dissimilar, which is a lot of times it's just people like kind of kvetching about who's, you know, (laughs) tending the fire and like, and, you know, or having like, yeah, they're hangry because they haven't, you know, haven't had anything to eat. And, but then the music is like making it feel like, yeah, this is going to end up bad for somebody. And then the, you know, you have these transitions of like sharks in the water. And I was like, we, we do that in (laughs) White Lotus. So I was like, so there's definitely, I guess, yeah, I, I have to cop to being influenced by Survivor and, or, you know, these shows where you, you have this kind of, um, yeah, you have a device that makes it feel like it's like a, yeah, a, a built-in cliffhanger. You made a half-joking re- reference to uh, Fantasy Island in an interview saying that your series is in a way a version of Fantasy Island. And Fantasy Island, for people who don't know the series, was, uh, you know, a comedy series. Can I call it a comedy series? Comedic drama? I don't know. From the late 70s and early 80s where people would come and vacation on Fantasy Island, where their fantasies would be fulfilled. And it was such a formulaic show. I mean, it was kind of hilarious to watch because it was apparently a fail-proof formula, but, you know, just an unembarrassed way (laughs) of of fulfilling the formula week after week. Um, So tell us why you made that comparison. Well, the truth is, I, like, I grew up, I'm the, definitely the Fantasy Island love boat generation. Or I was, the, you know, I was probably 10 to 13 years old when they were kind of in their heyday. And I love those shows. And I also, my other favorite show was Laverne and Shirley, which was the same time. And I was like, okay, because the two prostitutes in this show, I was like, this is, there's something very Laverne and Shirley here of these girls, like, trying try to, like, <laughs> you know, like, because uh, Laverne and Shirley were always trying to break into the, like, you know, the party that they weren't invited to. And, you know, like, they were kind of these, like, underdog working class girls. When you're on HBO and there's this all this sense of, like, you know, it's prestige TV and blah, blah, blah. And, like, I was just like, I'm doing, like, basically a reboot of Laverne and Shirley meets, you know, Fantasy Island with some Survivor dropped into it. But, yeah, I think those early, like, entertainment things that capture your imagination definitely stick with you. But it also has elements of, like, classic American theater, like Edward Albee and Eugene O'Neill psychodramas. I mean, you're you're hitting all my references. Yeah, I mean, I would I when I was a kid, I was like, my second grade teacher was Sam Shepard's mother, and so I like got Buried Child as a script, and then started reading like, yeah, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And I bought the. Re- I mean, I was ten years old. I had like the record of like Uta Hagen doing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and I would follow along in the book of it, the you know the printed 
play of it. And so, you know, rich people ordering drinks and getting drunk and starting to have like <laughs> arguments. And, and when I was young, I felt like that was the pinnacle of like sophisticated art. I mean, I was growing, you know, growing up in this like religious community in Pasadena. Like, it was just like I just felt like that was what that that's what high art was. That's what high society was. So I, I'm still working through that, I guess. Well, let's take another short break here. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mike White. He's the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series The White Lotus. Season two will conclude on Sunday. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Mike White, the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series The White Lotus. Season two, which concludes Sunday, is about the American guests vacationing at a luxurious hotel in Sicily. The season's focus is on the character's sex lives and how sex is leading more to unhappiness than fulfillment. Season one of The White Lotus was nominated for 20 Emmys and won 10, including for Best Limited or Anthology Series. It won Mike White, its creator, Emmys for both writing and directing. Mike White also created the HBO series Enlightened. He wrote the movie School of Rock and wrote and directed the film's Year of the Dog and Brad Status. Your father, who we've talked about before on the show, was an evangelical minister and ghostwrote memoirs for such homophobic evangelical leaders as Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson. And then your father came out and became a gay activist. You were 11, I think, when he came out. You had mentioned that because you grew up in like a religious environment, you were basically taught that expressing sexuality was kind of a sin. Can you talk a little bit more about what you were taught about sexuality in that environment, both by your parents and by school? I don't know if you went to a public school or um, an evangelical school, but I know you went to a religious camp. Was it like a Christian camp? Well, I mean, from my actual parents, I I don't know if it was talked about too much. Once I realized my dad was gay, and I, I found out he was gay prior to him like coming out to the family just because he'd had a lot of therapy and kept all these notes about the therapy, and I stumbled upon that and realized that this was <laughs> that there was this whole other side to him and, and what was going on. I was just always taught that within the greater community that my parents were a part of that you know sex was you know mostly sinful and kind of unspeakable and it was um yeah it was something that everybody kind of kept under wraps you know i i i went to a secular school and so i got more of a sense of you know it rounded out my perception of sex but you know, the truth was movies were the way that I got my education on sex, for better or worse. You know, like I, we had cable or, you know, an early form of cable in our house in Southern California. And I, you know, they had Z Channel and like late at night I would turn on movies. And I, yeah, I just, yeah, I started seeking out information on my own. You know, you mentioned that you found out your father was gay before the rest of the family knew because you stumbled on his papers and read that. And so what happened? Did you ask your father to explain it to you? Were you upset by what you'd read? You were 11. I don't know how much you understood what you were reading. Uh, well, my mom, I didn't find out before my mom. My, my parents were earnestly trying to 
go through the, the fact that my dad had these gay leanings or desires together, you know, and, but, it, but I knew before my sister and, and certainly before they told, uh, you know, people in our, in their kind of social circle. When I was young, it felt like such a betrayal because I, and so I, I, I kind of kept it to myself for a while. And then finally it, yeah, it came out that I, you know, that I knew and, you know, it was, it was a very tortured time because my, you know, my parents didn't have, couldn't provide any solace for me because they were still so, it was still so confusing and they were so tortured over it themselves. And so it was, you know, but it it was weird. I accepted it sooner than he did. Like, I, I, like it didn't bother me so much that he was gay, like the actual fact of him being gay. It was just more how it was going to impact our nuclear family and all of that. You know, everything is embarrassing, and that's just another thing. But it never felt like any more particularly embarrassing than just the fact that my, you know, parents had sex lives at all. What was your father's reaction when he realized that you knew and that you had read things that were meant to be private? I don't... I mean, I think it was... Oh man, my, my my dad was, you know, he was going through electroshock therapy. I mean, he was going through such, I mean, he was, he, you know, he so earnestly did not want to leave the family. He did not want to be gay. It was, it was very painful for him. So it was hard to, you know, it was hard to be mad at him and it was hard to, you know, it's like he, so he was, yeah, he was upset and like, you know, and he, you know, it was, it was all very sad. You know, it ended up, you know, my parents have a great relationship. You know, they soon had a, you know, like it, everything kind of worked out in a way, but it was, yeah, there was a f- years of a lot of like painful transitional process. Season one of The White Lotus was set in Hawaii at a luxurious hotel there. You're speaking to us now from Hawaii. You have a home there and you live part of the year there. You also went there to recover, tell me if I got this wrong, to recover from a nervous breakdown that you had in the, I think, early aughts after things went were not going well on a series that you were writing and you were having a lot of disagreements with the execs at the network that you were writing the series for. And in Enlightened, the main character, Laura Dern, when she has a nervous breakdown at work, goes to Hawaii to recover. You first started going to Hawaii vacationing there when you were a child with your family. Why were you going to Hawaii to vacation? And what did Hawaii look like to you from the perspective uh, of a child? Yeah, we. my dad, uh, he had a friend from Fuller Seminary, uh, another professor, or one of his students, I don't know, he, who lived in Honolulu. And this guy had children the same age as as my sister and I. And so that was our first trip there. But yeah, when I was young, it was, you know, it was the first place that I had been that wasn't home. And the feeling was so different and the vibe was so different and the colors and it felt like that was that was where vacation was. That's where, I don't know, that's that was where the elsewhere was that wasn't Pasadena and my home. And I guess, you know, you always are trying to reenact your childhood somehow. <laughs> you know, like I, when I got a little money, I was like, oh, I'll buy a little place in, in Hawaii and I can get my parents out there. It was like almost like trying to like, you go back to the scene of the original happiness. And 
you know, obviously all of, there's a lot of cliches involved with Hawaii too, which is like the aloha culture and everything is, you know, it's like this kind of like, you know, like it's the child's view. You know, now I'm old and cynical and like you, you know, the hotels and, you know, like you peel the the paradisical onion and you see how fraught the history is here with colonialism and, and how you're not necessarily a welcome guest to the people here. But like when you're a kid and you're like going to those like kitschy, you know, um, Hawaiiana luau's or whatever. It just there's something about it that just locks in my head as some kind of like this is what paradise is, and I think in the first season I was kind of playing with that, which is like you know it, it is paradise, and then it is obviously it's paradise in someone else's you know home who's not really <laughs> who got screwed over to have you there. But I am that kid, you know, so it's still trying to capture the magic of that that fantasy. I mean, one of the points of um of the white lotus is that you can be in a setting that resembles paradise and bring all your troubles with you. Like you bring yourself, you bring your troubled self to paradise and your troubled self remains troubled. And I'm wondering, you know, having lived in LA and lived in Hawaii, is being depressed in a paradise like setting any better than being depressed in a suburb or a city? you know, in Los Angeles. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think the the show tries to get at this a little bit too in just a macro thing that like, you know, when you're wealthy and you don't have like situational problems that have to do with money, then your problems become existential. It's just like, you you know, you have all of the tools to like figure out your life and you can't figure out your life. I think the same is like in, in the setting. So it's like, if you're in some gloomy, urban, dystopic spot, you can always say, oh, it's, you know, my surroundings that are making me depressed or this, it's like, but if you're in paradise and you feel like something's missing or you're melancholy or you're, you know, tortured, you know it's not the ambient <laughs> nature of what's going on. It's it's something in you. And so I, I feel like there's, uh, you know, as somebody who likes to write in an existential way about, like, the questions of happiness and whatever, fulfillment or frustrations or whatever, that it's it sometimes feels like it, it draws me to try to take all the sort of situational, like, excuses for unhappiness off the table. If you're just joining us, my guest is Mike White, who's the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series, The White Lotus. We'll be right back. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teledoc.com slash fresh air. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Mike White, the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series The White Lotus. Season two concludes on Sunday. The White Lotus has been a really big success. I mean, it's already renewed for a third season, and the second season isn't even over yet. The first season won 10 Emmys and received 20 nominations. That's like a lot. You received um, one for writing and one for directing. And what was the third? Well, just for the series itself as a producer. Yeah. So that was great. And, you know, I felt really happy for you. 
Um, <laughs> Thank you, Terry. And I know, like like you said, you worked in the margins for a long time and Enlightened, a series I loved, was canceled after the second season, which I know is a great disappointment for you. Um, what's it been like for you to have a series that has really caught on? I mean, it's a kind of zeitgeist series. You know, honestly, it's very... It's it's fun because I've, I mean I've I've worked really hard on this series. I, I it's really been a ultra marathon, especially doing this this last one right after the first season. It's just uh, you know I'm writing and directing them all, so it's 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 intense. But I've done that before on other things that have just sat on a shelf in some executive's office, and I can't get them to release it, or you know, or like it, it comes and goes and doesn't even seem to make a, a register in the culture. And so it's, I have to say, it's yeah, it's nice. It's not something that I ever expect, or I, I and I to me, I feel like this is just. I just feel like I'm like a surfer who's been in the ocean for like 25 years and like suddenly caught a wave, and I guess maybe just being out there long enough, I'll you know, you're gonna catch a wave. But it's good that it happened as I'm old because I'm just like I, you know, I, I, I know I'm to try to chase this is foolish because it's you know you never know. I you know it's 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 just a happy fluke. Has success changed your self-image or how other people see you? I do think it's changed me in certain ways that I I didn't expect. I, and I think it's informed my work and probably for, to some people, maybe not for the positive. But I, you know, it's like I, when I was younger, I always identified with the young person when and the, un, you know, as the underdog, the, you know, like the... You know, as you get older and you become in charge of people, like... <laughs> I guess I have more sympathy for like the older person and the uh, the person with power. You know, like it's like <laughs> when I was young, I was like, oh, you know, you're always wanting to stick it to the man, and I would write scripts about sticking it to the man, and then it's like you become the man, and you're like, well, the man has problems too. <laughs> the man, it's not so easy for the man. You know, so it's so maybe that's just maybe that's just the sad uh, march toward that. You know, you lose touch with the underdog or whatever. <laughs> Um, yeah, you want to hold on to your values that made you want to change the world and yeah, not become a sellout or not become somebody who's just, you know, wanting to defend the status quo at the same time. I don't know. There is something about being in power where you start to see how, you know, it's hard to be in charge. I don't you know, so I do think it's changed me a little bit, but hopefully, hopefully not unrecognizably so or, or irredeemably so. In one of your acceptance speeches for the first season of White Lotus, one of your Emmy acceptance speeches, you thanked your father and you said, you know, you were grateful that you had the chance to honor him, that he was struggling right now. Um, what was going on and how is he? Um, <sighs> is it okay to ask? Yeah, it's okay. I actually wanted to tell you is that yeah, my dad has uh, Lewy body dementia, and he has Alzheimer's, and he oh. has, he's in, yeah, he's in a really bad shape. Like he can't stand up, he can't walk, he can't roll over in bed. His his brain is still there. He you can talk with him, but he gets confused a lot, and he's he's not the person that he was. It was crazy because a year ago I went on a trip with him to Sweden, and we did the trip that they did in the show, and. Within a year, it's like he's like, yeah, he can't, he can't do anything. So that's distressing. But I always remembered us going on onto your show, and he was so proud of that. And so I did want to bring that up just because it's it's something that 
you know, my dad always wanted, um, you know, he wanted some kind of public approval and him being gay and being uh, seen as like a good person. Or It was funny how being on Amazing Race together, he got certain things out of that show that he wasn't even able to do in all these years of activism because people saw him as, you know, like a good dad and a funny guy. And and so, yeah, so when we went on, on to your show, which he's such a fan of yours, that it was it was a cool, cool thing for both of us. Does he have any sense of the success that you're having? Yeah, for sure. I, I, I brought one of the Emmys down and we left it with him. And he's, yeah, he's so proud. And, and you know, it's like I've been away for the last year because I've been shooting in Italy. And, and like, my dad was always, you know, he, you know, he loved, you know, it's like he, he loved me going off and achieving and being able to have, you know, the natural parental bragging rights. But now in the last year, you know, he, what he wants is just for me to be with him. Yeah, of and so it's yeah. it's. I feel like I've spent my whole adulthood trying to um, impress my dad by you know going out and making things, and, and obviously it wasn't just for him, but for me too. And then like now it's like I think he just wants me to be near him. So uh, so, do you want the series to be renewed? Like, do you know if you want to do this again? Especially given the circumstances that you're describing with your father. Maybe well, you don't want I to tell wanna, all I of us that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a conversation between you <laughs> no, and executives I mean, I, at HBO. I definitely, no, I, I, I definitely want to do it again. And this is a gift horse as far as, you know, having a platform to be able to, you know, they're basically letting me do whatever I want. And, you know, they, HBO is a place that has the resources to hopefully you can do it right. So, I, I you know, I feel like I don't want to mess this up. But yeah, as far as how it, to juggle that with the stuff that's going, you know, my mom's getting older too, you know, it's like I like I have all my friends, it's like I don't want, my fear is that I'll come back from, you know, another season and like every, you know, like no one's, no one knows who I am and, you know, I have no personal life anymore. But, but at the same time, I love being able to do this and also being able to incorporate travel into it and, and try to, you know, shooting in Italy was such a fantasy and to maybe do this again in another culture, another country uh, would be really cool. And I feel like, you know, this the idea is elastic enough that it's not like I can, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm stuck in some formula. I can I can try to come up with a new theme and new characters and a new reason to do it. And, and so it's really... It's really on me. And new people to kill in the opening scene. <laughs> yeah, as long as someone's dead in the opening scene, I can do I can do whatever I want. Mike White, it's been great to talk with you again. I've really been enjoying this season and um, can't wait to see how it ends. So thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, thanks for having me, Terry. Mike White is the creator, writer, and director of the HBO series The White Lotus. The season finale is Sunday. After we take a short break, rock critic Ken Tucker will review singles by three artists, including Carly Rae Jepsen, each dealing with past romance. This is Fresh Air. Rock critic Ken Tucker has three new songs for you to hear by artists at different stages of grappling with romances from the past. The new music is from Caitlin Rose, who's just released her first new album in almost a decade, Natalie Merring, who records under the name Wise Blood, and Carly Rae Jepsen, who sings a duet with Rufus Wainwright on her new single. Here's Ken's review. Gloves 
three songs I'm going to play are from singer-songwriters with widely different approaches to their common theme, which is regret for something in the past that inspires a resolution in the present. Take Caitlin Rose, whose song Getting It Right is about not repeating mistakes she's made in matters of the heart. In my 2013 review of Rose's last album, I said that she makes breaking up sound like a good house-cleaning of the soul. On this new song, she's ready to leave the house and enjoy life again. So many nights looking to find the good that's buried in this heart of mine. Lost in a mirror, caught in a bind, seeing myself in them every time. Talk Caitlin Rose is based in Nashville, but Getting It Right has the easy swing of L.A. country rock, something Linda Ronstadt might have sung early in her career. Natalie Maring has recorded for more than a decade under the name Wise Blood. She has a new album called And In the Darkness, Hearts Aglow. And the song on it that struck me most is It's Not Just Me, It's Everybody. It starts with the singer feeling lonely at a party, but rapidly expands and blossoms into a rich, ethereal ballad about, as she puts it, living in the wake of overwhelming changes. Her stated goal here is to make meaningful connections with some new people. Sitting at this party It's like the best Joni Mitchell song you've never heard. The third song I want to play is from the always underrated pop singer Carly Rae Jepsen, who has a new album out called The Loneliest Time, with a single of the same name, a duet with singer Rufus Wainwright. Like the Wise Blood song, what starts as a lonely woman ballad quickly becomes something else, in this case, a big disco production. The throwback sound fits a song about repairing an old relationship with fresh wisdom. I've had one of those bad dreams Where we're standing on your street I quit smoking those cigarettes But I'm never getting over it And you're looking right to me Just like Shakespeare Tragedy, but our story never finished it. 
Loneliest Time has gotten unanticipated attention because its spoken word bridge two-thirds of the way through has been seized upon by TikTok users, who use it to illustrate their own videos of heartache and reconciliation. We're talking TikTok videos with combined millions of views. And when TikTok fame occurs, it opens up a new young audience, one that Carly Rae Jepsen certainly deserves. What happened was, we reached the moon. But lost in space, I think we got there all too soon But you know what? I'm coming back for you, baby I'm coming back for you Ken Tucker reviewed new music by Caitlin Rose, Wise Blood, and Carly Rae Jepsen Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll hear what it's like being a maitre d' at the fanciest restaurants in New York City Our guest will be Michael Checky Azalina who's worked in the business for three decades, telling wealthy diners, celebrities, and even the mafia whether or not they can have the table by the window. His new memoir is called Your Table is Ready. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Charlie Kyer. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross.